Hello and welcome to It's All Relative, the podcast that takes a creative look at the generation gap by interviewing two different members of the same family to discuss their contrasting lives, values and experiences. Lord Patrick McLaughlin is not your typical conservative. Put to one side visions of posh boys and tails wreaking havoc in the Billingdon Club and instead consider the young Patrick, who as a teenager from Staffordshire followed in his father's footsteps working at the local mining colliery. He may have been from a solid Labour background, but Patrick found his politics crystallising in altogether different ways during the 1984-5 miners' strike. It was an industrial dispute which pitted families against families, and for Patrick, as an outlier within the National Union of Mine Workers, found himself labelled as a Tory scab. Whether as a miner or later as a Conservative MP, pragmatism, though, and a desire to get things done has always been at the core of his political values. Perhaps this is why Patrick quickly rose through the ranks at Westminster, serving under four different prime ministers and holding key posts within the cabinet from the Department of Transport to party chairman. Patrick today is joined by his millennial son, podcaster and former business advisor to Theresa May, Jimmy McLaughlin. Now you could say that there are two types of offspring in this world, those that are an imitation of their parents and those that are a reaction against them. Jimmy is arguably both. After university, Jimmy dived into his father's world, working on Boris Johnson's London mayoral campaign. He later worked at the Institute of Directors, linking that old establishment club with a new breed of startup entrepreneurs. When Theresa May entered Downing Street, it was Jimmy she picked as her special advisor on business relations, where he was the chief liaising figure dealing with business during the intense and uncertain period following the Brexit vote. The Times described Jimmy as a policy wonk with a lexicon of crowdfunding and the sharing economy, a flag waver for millennials whose view of the world of work and the notion of capitalism is different from that of their parents. And it was this outlook which obviously inspired him to go and study at Stamford after leaving Downing Street and then launch a podcast called Jimmy's Jobs, focusing on entrepreneurship, startup culture and the future of work. Patrick, Jimmy, Welcome to It's All Relative. Thank you very much. <laughs> Clearly have done your research. Just summarised your, both your lives there in under two minutes. <laughs> um, so let's start with you, Patrick, because I think it's fascinating to hear someone from a traditional Labour background going through that journey to becoming a Conservative and then ultimately a Conservative MP. Well, you say from a traditional Labour background, one of the big regrets of my my, my life is I never knew my father really. He died when I was the day after my seventh birthday. So I was actually brought up by my mother who brought the family up, she, a single sort of parent. And uh, I, I think she was probably always a Tory. But, oh, really? But, but politics was not part of, of, of our world. I mean, it wasn't something that was discussed anyway or, or shaped. But uh, uh, my dad was certainly a, a supporter of the Labour Party. So, so that was uh, my, my background, but it was very, very non-political. Uh, and, um, you know, my mother was uh, as shocked as anything when I started getting involved in politics. And and so talk about the, the miners' strike, because obviously you, you were an outlier in, on your position on that. I simply took the view that, uh, you know, the pit I worked at, which was Littleton Colliery, which was where my dad, dad had worked, which was in Huntington in Staffordshire, I'd, we had a ballot. 
and uh, there was a ballot at the pit and it was overwhelming to carry on working and I decided that uh, I wasn't going to be dragged out on strike by somebody who was uh, determined to try and bring down the government which I supported. I was a, a councillor. I'd stood for Parliament in 1983 in uh, Wolverhampton South East. Why did you become, a th- would you call yourself a Thatcherite or a Conservative and what particularly attracted you to politics, particularly as you've been from a non-political background? What attracted me to politics is I came on a visit from school to the House of Commons and I thought to myself one day, I want to come back here as a Member of Parliament. I remember telling my best friend this and I said, uh, John, I've decided that what I want to do in life. He said, what's that, Patrick? I said, I want to be an MP. He said, if I was you, I'd keep that a secret because it wasn't <laughs> the kind of thing that you would say in a sort of comprehensive school in Cannock. So that's what sort of gave me that first buzz of uh, I want to be part of that. I, I just felt it when you went round the House of Commons, you sense the history, you sense the people who'd been there and done things before you. And uh, I wanted to be part of that decision-making process. Mm. And Jimmy, turning to you, I mean, they often say that with the real victims of politics are the politicians' families. And <laughs> what was it like growing up with your father as an MP, just within the local community, but also were you on the cam- campaign trail in your pram? Um, well, I... I mean, I've never known anything different, right? So it's a question mm. you're always kind of asked of, like, what's it like to have an MP's dad? Of course, he was elected sort of four months before I was born. You know, it does sort of take the family on. I mean, so to go through it now, and I only really appreciate this as I've become a father recently myself, but there was the by-election that he was elected in in 86. I then arrived four months later. There was then the general election of 87, and then my sister arrived a year later. So... Pretty sure mum doesn't want to go through those uh, those years again. <laughs> we have got a very fantastic photo of James at East Midlands Airport when Margaret Thatcher comes in in the 87 election, where he's got a T-shirt on which says, vote for my dad, and Mrs. T's pulling the T-shirt down and sort of holding it before the cameras. So it's a, that's a, a photo that uh, floats around the household. Oh, the glamour. Oh, the glamour of that, that um, image. And, and so just out of interest then, as a father and son, where do you think your politics converge and diverge what would you say are the similarities and shared values on your on the political front i don't know who wants to take that first really (laughs) you pointed at me um i mean look i think we're both you know practical conservatives what does that mean just to nail that down i mean the the british kind of electoral system kind of gives you two choices right and fundamentally we will both always believe that the conservative party is better than the labor party i've definitely evolved into kind of probably different political strands at various points throughout that partly because you're you're trying to sort of you know you're trying to find your your way in the in the world and and work out what conservatism means because it does Mm. the the brilliance of conservatism and why the party is the oldest political party in the world is it's changed what conservatism is quite a bit to itself yeah, no, I, I I think I buy and agree with James completely on that. I mean, that's the, the what was sort of fundamental logic back in 1975. But uh, you know, those core principles about a smaller state, about people being able to do things better for themselves, and the state can do it. I think those are fundamental uh, areas about trying to let people keep as much of their money as they possibly can, saying that they can do a better job at spending it than the state can. That doesn't mean to say that the role of the state is not there. The role of the state is very important, particularly for people in vulnerable situations. And I believe gay marriage was one of those areas that your views evolved on. Yes, I mean, I, I, I 
I, I was asked a, at uh, the time of my uh, the time of gay marriage. I I well remember uh, a lot of people were saying to me, you know, civil partnerships. That's that's all right. That's fine. That's that's where we should go. Uh, and I voted against civil partnerships. And I'm ashamed of myself for voting against civil partnerships because I know people who've had civil partnerships. It changed their lives. It made them feel happier and better. It didn't have any impact on my life at all. Why why did you vote against it initially? Because I I had representations and uh, that would be the way I I tell you. When I talked to David Cameron about uh, gay marriage, I said, look, this is an issue I've been on the wrong side of for uh, 30 years in in Parliament. So uh, I want to be on the right side on this particular issue. Uh, And I think it's that that tolerance that one should have. And I'm very pleased that uh, we did change the law for that. Mm. And and are are there areas that you disagree on? Brexit? Um, Did you yes. disagree on Brexit? Ooh. That that is the 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 one area that um that we that we disagreed on. Um Can you just clarify who was Yeah, the so main... I, I I voted leave um in the end. But my own journey with it was as you mentioned in the intro, I was working at the Institute of Directors, which is a lobby group for business organizations. And I was desperate that the IOD not get involved in either leave or remain because I don't think it's necessarily the part of those organisations to get involved in it. Although I don't think I was entirely saying that when I was the advisor to Theresa May a (laughs) a year later, but that was my view there at that time. And so I only made my mind up um, at the very end of the the campaign to vote leave. But I'd always sort of been on that kind of spectrum and and so forth. And it it was, you know, the point of this podcast... What I said to you the day before was that if I had been older, um, I could see the opportunities, like I could see the benefits of remaining. Of course I could. But my career still had 40 years in front of it. And of course, leaving the European Union was going to have, was not going to be a simple process. It was going to be very difficult for five years, I think was the exact phrase I said to you. But in the long term, I believe the United Kingdom can be better off being out um and i still maintain that it's so interesting because i imagine most families listening would would have seen the reverse in their families where older generations were the brexiteers and the younger were the remainers i was at a cabinet meeting on the saturday morning when david cameron came back with his deal and we were sort of sitting around the cabinet table and um the next morning the prime minister on the marsh program said the transport secretary summed it up brilliantly yesterday at the cabinet meeting and i thought you're not supposed to say that. It's supposed to be secret what's said at Cabinet. But I think if you're Prime Minister, you're allowed to uh, ignore those rules. And uh, what I said at that Cabinet meeting was that I'd, I'd always wanted to live in utopia. But the fact is, I'd wake up and find the European Union was still there. And if it was still there, I think we should be part of it and involved in the decision-making process. But I was also in favour of a referendum. And I took the view that once a referendum took place... Uh, that was we'd we'd abide by the result. So I regret that we left. Uh, I think it was not the right decision overall. But once that decision is taken, I've been fully signed up to the fact that we must leave the European Union, and I think uh, that is the right thing to do. Uh, we we gave that authority to the British people. They came up with their answer, and the government had to uh, implement it. Did you have heated discussions, or was it something that actually you didn't really talk about? I don't remember having eated discussion. We had a few, but I don't remember there were too there were no. too many eaten. But partly because, uh, you know, I, I respect James. Is you know he's got his own views, he's got his own own mind, and uh, the last thing in the world that will influence him to change his mind is his dad. So <laughs> don't try and do it. Just try and 
play with the grain. I think I think I've learned my mistakes from the things I've tried to stop him doing in the past and never gap. been successful. Gap year. Gap year. Uh, gap year. <laughs> what happened on the gap year? <laughs> well, we could, well, I think to your point about heated arguments, the only decision. Um, I think we took the decision that we weren't going to. Talk, yeah, we talked about it enough, and we weren't going to talk about it anymore towards the end. Um, and I, I think, think we all felt like that. Yeah. <laughs> quite. Um, and so, yeah, but yeah, there were other times. I mean, the, the gap year is probably the first uh, clear divergence of. You've got to uh, tell us what uh, happened on the gap year. Well, not, not major, apart from I made the decision very late in my A levels that I quite fancy the year off going travelling, and um, to say the family were not wholly supportive of that dad, dad wasn't I dad think the rest was, was. mum was yeah to be fair um so much so that you then tried to persuade uh, my sister to have a gap year a few years later when you failed in that as well so it's... <laughs> do you feel like that's the first time where there was a slight disconnect as because obviously you know patrick you didn't have a gap year and you didn't <laughs> go to university I, I, it was a different generational experience i mean you know i i left school at 16 uh, i started working straight away and i couldn't quite get this idea of a gap year uh, but james raised his own money for it and went and did it uh, I, I will always remember though on the uh, day that he was setting off his mother receiving a phone call he's about to get onto a plane to go to bangkok i think it was and he said oh by the way, how do you get to Heathrow Airport? Um, which sort of did completely fill me with fear as to what was going on. No city mapper then. So let's talk social mobility because you both are an embodiment of, of social mobility and, and a real rise perhaps inspired by the Thatcher years and those reforms. Do, do class associations and brackets have any meaning to you, Patrick? I've... I've been very upwardly mobile, I suppose. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, I, I'm not so sure that people have got that kind of opportunity today that I, I managed to have and grab. Um, so I think that's... Uh, and some, why is that? I think, life, I think life has become a bit more difficult. I think, um, you know, if you don't... Uh, university education has become much more an essential part. Is that where you think the state should step in? I think one of the things... One of the things you've got to do is, 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 is give people the opportunity so that they can improve, improve their lives. And I think one of the things that I'm very concerned about is sometimes people at 18 or 20 make the wrong decisions, but they should be able to change those decisions and still get those opportunities later in life. Now, the whole world of work, I mean, when I listen to, to Jimmy's uh, podcasts about jobs for the future, the, the whole way in which people are recruited these days has changed so much um, that I find it a, a fascinating uh, new world. Mm, and in a way, it's generationally specific as well as class specific. Uh, Jimmy, are you middle class? You've got bifold doors. Of course you are. <laughs> It's oh, <laughs> a real definition of middle class <laughs> identity by fold doors. <laughs> well, we were talking about beforehand. One of my it's all right when they work. <laughs> <laughs> They're really cold. The breakfast, the breakfast I have most days is Huel, but at weekends I do quite enjoy avocado on toast, but with bacon, which I always think is like a millennial staple with it a is. nod to my working class roots, the bacon bit. <laughs> um, I think... I don't know how I would define myself. One of the things I do find interesting is on the the podcast, Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, is that we interview entrepreneurs about the future of work. What has struck me about a number of them is how many of them would probably define themselves as working class. Um, mm. The likes of sort of Ben Francis, John Roberts. Um, you know, they... And that partly leads to entrepreneurialism because there's 
they have nothing to lose a little bit in that sense. And I always remember something Andrew Mitchell, the MP for Susan Coalfield, said to me about my dad was that if he were born now, he would be an entrepreneur. And I do think that's that is quite an interesting observation from Andrew. What did he mean by that? In that you wouldn't have obviously gone down the pits, but you would have seen the same opportunity for social mobility in not politics, but in entrepreneurship. Yeah, I, I, and I think there are more options to kind of be an entrepreneur now. I think, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, you, you couldn't have done that. Well, you, I mean, you could obviously because there were there were businesses in commerce then, but it wasn't as a kind of career path, as it were. Um, and it just would have been a lot more kind of challenging to, to do that. I mean, it's part of the reason why I started the podcast is because we have all this, you know, diversity aspect to everything. And it is because, and actually listening to my dad at the beginning of that talk about, well, it was going to the House of Commons mm. that made me realise I was going to be a member of Parliament. That is what I am trying to replicate in some ways with the podcast, is getting these entrepreneurs on to talk about their backstory, but also people with just interesting jobs more generally. And so people can see, well, actually, I can do that. You know, because it's fine to sort of say the BBC's got to have more diversity on its screens and so on. That is still quite a long way for somebody to be sitting in a kind of flat somewhere and think, well, I'm going to get there, right? Like, you've got to make it seem more accessible to people and, and closer to them. And so that's what kind of drives a lot of it. Mm. How would you say our working life is going to be different to your father's generation? I pause because there's just so many aspects that I think will be different. I think the primary one that I, you know, it's no longer linear, right? And that's pretty steadfast, the common opinion. And, you know, it used to be that people have um, four or five jobs, careers. Even that is kind of breaking down now. The way I sort of see it is the biggest change will be that you will go through periods of intensity and so forth. And so you will, there will be times where you talk where you do sort of work on a startup or or an intense job and you will do three or four years in that. And then you will step back and have a couple of years where it's not quite so intense. And so, Patrick, do you think that facilitates greater need for the state to get involved in work, workers' rights, working support for working fathers as well as supporting working mothers? Or actually, do you think because it's becoming much more fluid and less, less fixed, the state needs to kind of take an even greater step back? I think the state, there is always a role for the state in basic conditions so that people are treated equally and fairly in, in society. I, I think the other thing that is a big change is the way it's now seen very much in the employer's interest to make sure he looks after its workforce and to make sure the workforce are happy and contented and doing the job that they want to do. I, I think one of the things I've learned from uh, listening to uh, Jimmy's, uh, I, I got to get used to this Jimmy law. Um, <laughs> to, it's uh, James to Patrick, by the way, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, speaks volumes. <laughs> to, uh, to Jimmy's um, podcasts are the fact that, uh, you know, just how important people regard recruiting and how much effort is put in to make sure you get the right kind of, uh, um, you recruit the right kind of people because it, it takes time. But one of the things the pandemic did highlight for us all was that divide between, you know, frontline workers who had mm. to go out and keep the country running and those, the rest of us, sat in front of a green dot on Zoom meetings. Now, yes, that was detrimental to our mental health and exhausting, but nothing like the pressures, the constraints, the difficulties that frontline workers were under during lockdown. 
where you're entering a new era of work, but also a, a real divide, even a greater divide within the workforce? Well, I think that's one of the things that people have got, we've got to be very careful about because there are a lot of people who can't just work from home. Uh, there are a lot of jobs that require people turning up and doing sometimes not very pleasant jobs as well. So I think that's got to be taken into account. Jimmy, you, you work a lot within the tech sector. Where do you think our relationship with tech is at the moment? Are we in the, the midst of a tech lash? Is our generation starting to go, actually, all of this is not good for us and not good for society and needs regulating? I'm not sure it needs regulating. In, in in terms of when it comes to working, I think what will happen with employers, talking to that point about competitive nature, is that you are going to have the top tier employees like Goldman Sachs that are going to kind of say, you are coming to the office and you will be on your phone the, the entire time, um, or a lot of it, because they can demand that. There will then be a sort of another tier of the kind of creative, marketeer kind of class where I think that actually they will end up in competition for this talent and a lot of that will be offering different things like the right to disconnect and so forth so I think that's where it, it will become on the employer side it will become a competitive advantage that they try to demonstrate um, it will be one of the questions that people going to work for places like that will um, will kind of demand so, Patrick, then, do you think you were lucky to have been born in the time that you were? The way my life's turned out, yes. <laughs> but I, I, I must admit, I quite like to start again now. Really? Why? Oh, I think the opportunity. Well, of course, it's exhausting. <laughs> but then that, that's, you know, those opportunities, uh, the new, those opportunities that perhaps weren't identified when I was. Uh, so, growing up but so that's interesting what excites you about the modern world I, I think technology one of the things that I was never sort of recognized I, I, I'm, I'm not the greatest reader in the world I, I suffer I've got dyslexia and uh, I think I'd be better better in today's society than I was uh, in, mm. in the 60s mm. Mm. what do you think you do now then I, I think I, I don't know I think that's difficult I mean I've always I've always liked the idea of the law and uh, Jimmy are you glad you were born at a time you know, in the time you were? Yes, I am. I think if I were being very picky about it, I think I would have maybe liked to have been born sort of five or eight years later. I think the kind of change that came with the financial crash um, is pretty extraordinary and generally benefiting. So what I think I mean by that, and I've never thought about it before, so I'm sort of um, slightly dancing on hot coals now with this answer. When I was coming of age and entering the workforce it was very much that high flyers um went to the city and and finance and that was pretty much it mm. i'm talking late noughties with, with that answer and i think what happened throughout the sort of 2010s is there are so many more options now and that brings with it its challenges by the way of like working out where you want to go but i look at what kind of what ben francis has built at gymshark for example and you know how old is he so he is 29, right. um, he employs close to a 1,000 people in the West Midlands now and has built a global brand that he started in 2012. And I just don't think that that would have been possible 10 years before. But I just think that, that so that's a kind of a, a minor reflection that I have. And so that brings me to my final topic, is fatherhood. Mm. And 
I wonder, Jimmy, if you could just reflect on, there was a period, obviously, just after you left Downing Street where you were a stay-at-home dad. And that's, you know, to your credit, obviously, but um, also reflective of your generation um, of millennial fathers for whom, you know, their identity is, as dads is, is, is becoming, I think, ever more important. So that was a pretty extraordinary kind of moment because it was at that peak of the pandemic of when you couldn't see anyone, you couldn't... You know, all you could do was walk in a park. Um, and so, yeah, we had uh, we had 12 hours a day at home, effectively, which has been, um, which was a kind of a amazing um, experience. And it's not kind of how I said it. I mean, you say I chose to be a stay-at-home dad. I mean, okay. I was forced by the government to kind of do it. Um, uh, but it was like, it was incredible and, and has formed such a sort of strong bond now between my daughter and I. So let's finish then with the quick fire round of firsts. Firsts that have defined you and your youth, which will make the listeners feel either very old or very young, depending on your answers. So, Patrick, what was your first job and what did you get paid? My first job was a, tra- a trainee chef. It was an unplanned I got offered this job as a trainee chef at 16 and I started working at the New England Red. That is apart from the part-time jobs I did like paper rounds, et cetera, et cetera, when I was before oh, that. But my first full-time job was uh, a really? paper and, and I got paid £6 a week, but I did get board and lodgings. So uh, board and lodgings. that was 1975. Great. And Jimmy? It was £3.50 waiting at a golf club. Was into, that's pre-minimum wage wasn't yeah it? It was pre-minimum yeah. wage and then uh. first proper job was egg credit card um in my um gap year and that was twelve thousand three hundred a year um, which you could treble that if you were good at sales and did lots of overtime which i did had to pay for the gap year yeah, exactly and what was your first music purchase and in which format patrick must have been a, it would have been a vinyl record and it might have been season, terry jack seasons in the sun which i just absolutely adored Jimmy, what was your first music purchase and it was, format? It was Three Lions on CD. <gasps> that was a moment. A whole Footy Anthems kind of like album I bought. Um, was that 96? Yeah. So that was a real generational moment. So what was the first holiday without your parents? And what did you get up to, Jimmy? First holiday without my Are we back to the gap year? parents. No. We better not know what he got up to. <laughs> no. I'm... Um, there were some adventure trips that I did with PGL without mm. parents, um, but the first one was going to Spain post A-levels, probably a kind of classic. Was that your first flight? No, my first flight was with school to um, Tunisia. That's yeah. very exotic. We went to Surrey. Um, Patrick? First flight was to America as part of an exchange, and I was about 22. Two or something like that by, by, by then. My first holiday without parents, uh, we never went on holiday as children. Yeah, gosh. We didn't do holidays. Did I, did, holidays? I did day trips from the local, because as I say, my dad died when I was very young, mm. and he was, he, there were day trips from the local working men's club uh, to uh, the seaside, so yes. Blackpool and Rill and places like that, but we didn't do holidays. That, I tell you what, that is definitely a divergence where we've got this love of travelling and holidays. Like That's not a big passion of yours particularly, but it is of mine. Yeah. No, well, uh, but I'm getting better. You get a bit. <laughs> chairman of Visit Britain. He's all about Britain. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, well, visit, uh, exactly. <laughs> visit Britain, everyone. And the final question is, you are both products of the 20th century. What advice would you give your granddaughter as she tries to navigate her way through the 21st century? 
well, on the basis that she won't listen to what I say if she's like <laughs> me. Um, the thing that I that has stuck with me, sports coaches used to stay say to me quite a lot that this kind of stuck with me, which was stay humble and stay hungry regardless of success or you know down times or whatever. The third one that I would add to that is kind of stay curious, and a big part of why incentive for me behind doing this was obviously you've appeared on my podcast as well but was that I would very much like her to listen to this in 20-25 years time kind of when we were both sort of lucid with it and so on because you you know it takes such a long time to grow up Patrick what what advice are you going to give always have ambition always have something to aim for and once you've achieved it get another one and achieve that as well fantastic and what an example she has in both of you in in terms of ambition and goal and drive thank you so much for your contributions and your insights and sharing um everything you've learned and the generational divide between you two thank you so much thank you thank you been brilliant well, listeners, wasn't that fun? And it was made all the more fun by the fact that it was an in-person recording with Patrick and Jimmy sat right opposite me. If you would like to hear more from me, why don't you subscribe to my newsletter at www.elizaphilby.com where your name will still be entered into a prize draw where you have a chance to win some impressive acorn goodies and the result of that competition will be announced in the final episode in two weeks time you can also find me on linkedin twitter and instagram at eliza philby i look forward to you all tuning in for the final episode season one of it's all relative